Hey, Weedsers. Are you going to be in Austin for South by Southwest? If so, I'd love to invite you to join me for a live taping of the Ezra Klein Show. I'll be at the deep end by Vox Media on Sunday, March 11th at 3.30, talking with Melinda Gates, co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. We're going to be talking about the work they do, about the state of public health worldwide, about what is and isn't getting better in the world. I'm very excited to have this conversation. The, the, the work they do is important, and it is controversial, and it is interesting, and it is making a lot of lives better, and there's a lot around that to dig into. So I think I think that's going to be a very good episode. And you should come see it. The deep end by Vox Media. We are taking over the Belmont for a three-day event at South by Southwest. West. Again, that is from March 9 to March 11th. And it isn't just me. You can get live podcasts from many Vox Media Podcast Network favorites, including Kara Swisher's Recode Decode, The Verge's Vergecast. But again, you can join me for a live taping The Ezra Klein Show on Sunday, March 11th at 3.30 for a conversation with Melinda Gates. To request an invitation, go to voxmedia.com slash sxsw-2018. Again, that is voxmedia.com slash sxsw-2018. Uh, I know that is super memorable, but again, sxsw-2018. And I'm looking forward to seeing you there. The weeds. Stuff happening in the government we don't like. <laughs> Stuff is happening. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, uh, joined today by Ezra Klein and Sarah Cliff. Original cast, back. It's That's amazing. Hasn't it's, been that long. Uh, Gosh, I don't know. Week. Just one week. I know, but then we're going to be gone again. Are it's, you guys listening to Today Explained? It's I, so good. I listen, I listen to it almost every day. It's really good. You should probably good. listen to it every day. You know, I, some days. I listen to it five days a week and then I rerun episodes on weekends. Just over and over again. But there was the day when they put out two episodes. I know. That that's was, true. That that made it even, that that made it even better. It they like were nice good. Surprise. They were great episodes. It really is great. If you've not subscribed, you should stop listening to this crappy podcast for a minute no, you know. and go subscribe <laughs> and then come back and finish listening to this podcast. Yeah, we're, we're evergreen. You can listen to us anytime. <laughs> um, so we got, got a great show for you. Got, got, some, got some research paper. Got a... How come when you say that, Matt, do you, you you never you never tease a paper. You're always just like, we have a paper, it's coming. Oh, this paper, this paper is about <laughs> constitutional hardball, one of my favorite subjects. Is this a research paper? It is, sort of. It's a it's a law school research. I don't know if it really I have counts. some questions about how footnotes are formatted. This, but asymmetric constitutional hardball. We're gonna talk about it. Exactly. It's like hardball, hardball with the weeds. but a curveball. We got healthcare, but first, bipartisanship is breaking out in Washington. Ezra. Finally. At last. Finally, Democrats and Republicans can agree on something. They're gonna what come, can they agree on? They're going to come together and fix a problem that has been really weighing on the minds of a lot of people that I talk to. Particularly in the 2016 election when those rural, unemployed Ohio machinists came together en masse and delivered a message to the political system, which All is banks with $240 billion <laughs> in assets need some help. Yes. Okay, so last. Ezra, you've been, you've been talking to a lot of people <laughs> right. about these Senate banking what rules. Is, what is what in this got? bill? So the Senate is preparing to pass uh, S-2155, the Economic Growth, Regulatory Relief, and Consumer Protection Act. Um, I have the bad news to tell you that does not acronym into anything fun. It's just a long name for the bill. This is a Dodd-Frank deregulation bill. It is not huge. And this is the first thing I want to say, because I spent a lot of time reporting on this, trying to understand the scale of this bill, because what it does is complicated and, and multifaceted, and we'll get into it. This is not what Republicans have wanted to do, which is repeal Dodd-Frank. And one way you see that is that it currently has 12 Democratic co-sponsors, which are mostly moderate Democrats, folks like John Tester, Mark Warner from Virginia. Um, it has Tim Kaine, the, the recent, obviously, vice presidential nominee. But on the other hand, liberal Democrats are very angry about this bill. Uh, Elizabeth Warren sent out an email to supporters saying the bank lobbyists are getting ready to pop champagne and light their cigars, which I think is actually reasonably fair. So let me give a, a quick rundown of what the bill does, uh, because it's a couple different things simultaneously. One is that it gives what people refer to as local banks, which is banks with less than $10 billion in assets. These are, I would say, not technical terms. It gives banks with less than $10, 10 billion. less than $10 billion in assets relief from the Volcker rule, which um, I was talking to Barney Frank, who's obviously the, the, the namesake behind Dodd-Frank. He was saying that he doesn't think those banks are covered under the Volcker rule anyway, but, but they do. They've been upset about it. Their lawyers are telling them to be careful and, and make sure they're compliant. Um, and, and so it gives them relief from that. And some other quickly rules. the vocal like what does that require that is of gonna them? quickly okay. explain the vocal rule 
the Volcker rule makes it difficult for banks to do um, proprietary trading with their own money. The goal of the Volcker rule was for big, diversified banks, right? Like uh, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, to say that you need to like wall off your speculative trading arm from your basic deposits and, and lending arm. I agree with Marty Frank that this rule never was intended to apply to very small banks. I don't believe that it does apply to small banks. I believe, frankly, that legal consultants are scamming the banks into believing they need to hire them well, to comply, but, but they are getting relief. So, so that is for the $10 billion and under banks. It is regulatory relief from things that is not even clear they are under. There is very little debate about this. So, so I want to put this to the side of the bill. Nobody's really arguing about this. Democrats are willing to do this a couple of years ago. This is not a huge deal. The, the really big thing the bill does is that the way Dodd-Frank works is it imposes much higher levels of what's called prudential regulation as banks become bigger and more systemically important. The idea is you do not want these banks that if they fail, they pose a risk to the system failing. And so they have to have higher capital requirements. They they get a lot more scrutiny from regulators. They have to have these living wills for how they get resolved if they do begin to fail. But when Dodd-Frank was put in place, where that cutoff happened was set, uh, according to everyone who was involved in it, relatively arbitrarily at $50 billion. Now, $50 billion uh, in assets for a bank sounds very big. Within banking terms, it is not that big. Um, the biggest banks have trillions of dollars in assets. Uh, $50 billion is often called a regional bank. And these banks, $50 to $100 billion, $50 to $150 billion, they've been complaining that they're under all this regulatory scrutiny. They don't have the fleets of lawyers and regulatory compliance folks that the very big banks have. And it's keeping them from, from competing. This is also something that even folks who are pro-Dodd-Frank have been open to. And so there have been ideas about maybe moving that up to $100 billion. What this bill does, though, is it moves it way up. So it moves that uh, cutoff where you have to get that heavy regulation to $250 billion. And the argument for why you do this is basically that $250 billion, these banks are not individually, systemically that important. That if one of them failed, the system would be okay. The counter argument, which I think is completely persuasive, is that when banks begin to fail, they often fail in a correlated way. A lot of them simultaneously make the same trading mistakes. Um, you might remember that in the financial crisis, it isn't one bank that screwed up on subprime bonds. It was tons of banks. And if you put, say, three $240 billion banks together, you have a systemic failure the size of Lehman Brothers. So I don't think this is a good idea, but that, that's another. Then there's another thing that, that I just do want to point out. To me, this is actually the most galling thing in the in the bill, the, the, the part that is just the clearest giveaway to bank lobbyists. Right now, the way Dodd-Frank works is that it directs the Federal Reserve to, to regulate these big banks. Now we're talking about bigger than $250 billion, the, the real systemically important JP Morgan's, Goldman Chase's, et cetera. And it says that it's got to impose these regulations in Dodd-Frank. But if the Federal Reserve decides, if, they, if it sees a special reason to do so, it – and this is a key word here – it may tailor regulations specifically to these banks. This bill, um, it goes in and it changes the word may to it shall tailor regulations to these banks. So what it's now doing is saying the Federal Reserve has to go in and regulate each one of these banks individually instead of applying the regulations in an across-the-board fashion as they might like to do. That does a couple things. A big one is it opens the Federal Reserve up to more legal risk, which in turn opens it up to more effective lobbying from the banks. Uh, the Federal Reserve does not want to end up endlessly sued by Goldman Sachs's huge fleet of lawyers. And so when Goldman Sachs comes and says, hey, you're not giving us tailored regulations to our balance sheet, maybe the Federal Reserve says – uh, all right, well, let's negotiate this out. It also gives individual Federal Reserve regulators more discretion over how these banks are regulated. And given the revolving door problems we have, that's bad, too. Uh, I would like to see these these regulations put down with without so much discretion. So there's been a lot of pressure to pass this bill. Um, community banks are very powerful. Regional banks are very powerful. Uh, Democrats have for a long time wanted to raise these numbers, not as high as they're being raised now, but, but higher than they currently are. And so... Republicans have been able to get a, a pretty significant number of moderate Senate Democrats on board. This will pass the Senate. Um, there's a question then what happens with the House because the House wants to do something much more aggressive. So does the House simply swallow the Senate bill or does it try to come back with something that might 
lose all that democratic support it has. But 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 that's the basic shape of the river here. I will just say as a final point, I, I, I did speak to Barney Frank about the bill, and I'm just going to read his quote because I, th- I think it's kind of interesting. He said to me, I would vote against this bill, but I understand the pressure to vote for it. And I don't think the bill makes a serious dent in what we did. Here's the thing, though, that I think Barney Frank is missing here. Imagine a universe in which Democrats hold the White House, they hold narrow majorities in the House and Senate, and they need nine Senate Republican votes to get something done that some moderate Republicans think is the right thing to do on the merits, or at least in the neighborhood of something something reasonable. But the Democrats want to go further than most Republicans are comfortable with, and architects of Republican bills are like, eh, this isn't like the worst idea in the world, but I don't love it. In Democrats' dream, right, like their wildest, probably unrealistic dream, what Republicans would come back with is like, okay, we will go along with this if you want. We don't think it's a crazy idea, even though, you know, our base doesn't love it. But in exchange, we would like you to do something, right? So like all of the Democrats who are going to vote for this bill, if you ask them, How do you feel about the fact that Mick Mulvaney is currently dismantling the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau? They will all tell you, I do not like that. I believe in the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. I don't think that Donald Trump with an acting director whose even legal status is dubious should be completely destroying this institution, right? Like, that's what they say. So now they have this bill, right? They have all the leverage on this bill. Bank lobbyists are like, man, we really want this bill. We love this bill. Their base is like, fuck you guys. Don't vote for this bill. They could do it. They could say, you know what? We'll give you this bill. But in exchange, Donald Trump, you got to get Mulvaney out of there. You got to appoint a director with some bipartisan support, maybe even direct someone who who the community banking lobby is comfortable with, but who's going to come down on the big banks. Right. Like, like you could do this. That is how you legislate. And they're not doing that. They are just taking a dive. And like Barney Frank and people who I've spoken to, you know, who are influential in the Democratic Party, I feel like they're being polite about it. Like, it's it's true that this bill is, like, not the end of the world, and you don't need to, like, burn down your house over John Tester voting for it. But there's no, there's no case for it. Like, they're not, the moderates, they have all this leverage, and they are not using it to achieve anything that is in any way defensible other than make bank lobbyists happy. So this actually leads into a question. I was curious, Ezra, since you've been doing reporting on this, if you have thoughts on is how this became like the bipartisan thing. Like you kind of started us off with this intro about like, you know, of course, this is not what people were demanding. Um, I found a piece by Mike Consul at the Roosevelt Institute, interesting, where he wrote about the situation that community banks are currently in. And it doesn't seem that bad. So this is reading from his article where he says, loan balances for community banks rose by 7.7% over the past 12 months. This is more than twice the loan growth in large banks, which is which was 3.3%. Over 75% of community banks increased their loan balances from a year ago. The fact is community banks aren't struggling in the way many policy and industry advocates describe. So it you know, I'm sure there are things like obviously you you find something to tell people about why you need regulatory relief, but you know, if you think back like a month ago we were talking about immigration and we were talking about all these other issues and all of a sudden it seems to be banking is the thing that is Moving, like, what's your thinking after doing this reporting about how this became the thing that Democrats said, like, yeah, we want to work on this? So so there are a couple of things here. The, the big one, I would say, is that there is a lot of power in the banking industry. And, and this is something that I do think people miss. The most powerful players in the banking industry are actually not the biggest banks. They are these huge coalitions of local banks. Um, this is something that, that Barney Frank says a lot, but most senators, most members of Congress do not have J.P. Morgan Chase headquartered in their district, but they all have like four or five or ten of these smaller banks. The people who run the banks are community leaders. They're their friends. They're their donors. And so one piece of it is that they just exert a lot of pressure in the classic political sense. But the other thing, uh, I think, to your point, has to do with the, the current dynamics of a paralyzed, polarized Congress. So there is an almost endless list of legislation and problems that legislation could solve that is more important than this. In fact, I do not think this solves 
anything that I would define as a problem at all. Whether it's an okay thing to do is one could argue, but like the way I think about what a problem is, it just does not solve any problems. But that said, the thing it does have is agreement. So the banking committee uh, was able to pass this bill out. This when it should be said, Mike Crapo, the the head, the Republican head of the banking committee, ran a very regular process on this. It's had a lot of amendments. He's had a extremely strong bipartisan process. The ranking member on the banking committee is Sherrod Brown, who's a, a Democrat from Ohio, a populist. He hates this bill and has been organizing um, opposition to it. But there have been others uh, on that committee, including a number of, of significant sort of powerful Democrats like Mark Warner, who have been for it and, ha- and have been been part of it. And so the reason this is moving, I don't think is because this is anybody's idea of the highest priority legislation around. It is because that all the high priority legislation is stalled. Um, They can't move immigration because they have no agreement on immigration. They did taxes already. They can't move Obamacare appeal because they don't have the votes on Obamacare appeal. And just sort of climate change, energy, like anything else you can imagine, there is no agreement on it. Uh, it is a reflection of the dynamics so of Washington that this is the kind of thing that can sneak through or, or, or roll through with agreement. I think this is, though, if you step back from it, a more toxic moment even than, than it, it sounds at first glance because you go back to the election. And, and we were making jokes about this at the beginning, but I went back to this final Donald Trump ad, which is literally called Donald Trump's Argument for America. And it's worth just listening for a minute. to This is Donald Trump's closing ad, which people remember now because it kicked up a quick furor over anti-Semitic imagery, but just like worth listening to what Trump said here. The establishment has trillions of dollars at stake in this election. For those who control the levers of power in Washington and for the global special interest, they partner with these people that don't have your good in mind. The candidate who won the election separated himself from Republican challengers by making an argument that he was more populist and he was disgusted by the special interests and the lobbyists in Washington. After the election, there was this widespread bipartisan agreement that the American people were sick and tired of these special interests running everything, that they, they had delivered a resounding uh, electoral victory for populism. And then this is what you get. And part of this is Donald Trump, right? He said he would drain the swamp and instead is very much a creature from the swamp. But part of it is that there's something in that critique that is correct, that even when Washington can't find any agreement to actually solve problems, it can find agreement if the Players lobbying for an agreement are powerful and rich enough and correctly situated in enough geographic districts. And I think it is offensive. I think it is, even if this bill is not the end of the world, as you say, the fact that this is what is able to move in Congress right now, given all the other things it can't, given everything else that is happening. I mean, bipartisanship is often taken as synonymous with good things, but it very often is not. But you're also like, I mean, you just. My mind is blown by the the cynicism and bad faith of the Democrats backing this bill. I mean, you can talk about Trump. It's like Trump's a liar, right? The reason Trump is doing this, in contrary to everything he said, is that he's a liar and he's corrupt and he's a scumbag. So now you're Heidi Heitkamp, right? Represent North Dakota. You got a big fucking problem on your hands, right? It's a super Trump state. Like people voted for Trump in droves there. So you definitely cannot just like, back the Democratic Party line on every issue. You definitely have to side with Donald Trump on some stuff. So this is like the list, right? There's the whole universe of stuff. There's like, here's what I agree with Trump on. Why fucking this, right? Like, why not? Particularly because you, there's this imperative to say for, with, with these red states, in a way that there isn't with the blue states, to do the whole empathy shtick. You know, like I didn't vote for Donald Trump, but I understand why people did. Like, I 100% feel them on the same wavelength. So, like, why not say, like, you thought that ad was great, right? Like, you get it. Like, people here in North Dakota, like, they're tired of the influence, blah, blah, blah. And, like, oppose Trump on this. I think that it is normally overly simplistic to ascribe outcomes in Congress to pure corruption. But, like, this is pure corruption. It's political malpractice. It's policy is terrible. The leverage is being used not at all for no reason. The public defense that's being offered is that the bill is not as bad as the critics say that it is, which is 
may be true, but like you shouldn't vote for bills that are bad at all. Like, oh, it's just a little bit bad. Like that's that's nuts. And I think even some of the stuff about like the smaller banks, it, it doesn't hold on to much scrutiny. Like if you look at the the Fed's handy list of, of banks by asset size, right? A lot of the banks that are in that 50 to 250 billion dollar range, the sort of mid-sized banks, they're banks like Santander or BBVA um, or, or BNP Paribas. And, and these are banks that are they're the U.S. subsidiaries of big multinational. Can I bring up a yeah. point on this? So there's another thing happening in this bill that I didn't go into in the intro, but I, I want to note on this. The bill creates a situation where mega foreign banks, and here we can go even bigger, Credit Suisse and Deutsche Bank, their U.S. holdings are often under the $250 billion asset mark. They can put the holdings in a vehicle um, called an intermediate holding – I may be forgetting the name, but an intermediate something vehicle. And then it's you know regulated in this more light way. Uh, Sherrod Brown, as I understand it, offered – I thought this is so ridiculous because it gives foreign banks a competitive advantage over domestic big banks. I mean right. and foreign banks are not pop- – the whole thing is crazy. I assumed it had to be a mistake when I first heard about it. But my understanding is that Sherrod Brown offered an amendment to clarify this and it got beat back on a party line vote. So, I mean that's an intended part well, of so this Well, so just bill. to be clear. So if you're Santander, you can do this. But if you're like J.P. Morgan, right, exactly. that's not an option JP on the Morgan, table. You have way over $250 yes. billion in domestic assets. Right. So, it's, so J.P. Morgan is big in the United States. So like banks that are big – as big globally as JP Morgan, but medium sized in America, gain now this competitive advantage against both the bigger banks, because they're less regulated than them, and the smaller banks, because they're regulated on a level playing field, but they have more scale. I just want to note it's not just them countrywide, which we we remember. That was a bank in this size range, right? An American bank in this side size range. Or there, one of the major arguments being consistently offered for this bill is that what it was what it is doing would not have hurt our ability to prevent the 2007 financial crisis. But the savings and loan crisis, which was a huge deal in the 80s, it was the correlated failure of a ton of mid-sized financial institutions. I mean, the idea that Financial institutions don't fail in correlated ways. I just I don't understand where this is coming from. And then the other piece of it, at the same time that they're trying to give regulators more discretion, one just piece of everything, and this goes to having Mulvaney as the head of the CFPB right now. I mean, if regulators decide not to use the powers they already have, um, we're not going to prevent anything. And yes, there is still a fair amount of power in the in Dodd Frank, even if this bill passes, for regulators to even reach down into a two hundred billion dollar bank and and begin to look at what's going on if they decide there is some huge problem. But I, I think the big thing you see here is an overall change in the system. Who Donald Trump is appointing, who he's putting on courts, um, and what is happening in Congress, a move away from a real concern over financial regulation and towards a belief that financial regulation has gotten too tough already. And that should just, in the long run, worry you because it isn't just what the law says but how different players want to enforce it, whether the people who run the banking committee are hauling regulators in and yelling at them about whether or not they're being tough enough. And we're just clearly moving in that other direction now. But I think it's even – Broader than that, if you listen to Today Explain, our excellent podcast that comes out every day instead of twice a week, I did an episode with them about um, this crazy situation in Idaho that we actually talked about last week where the Trump administration has just decided, you know, what, we don't feel like enforcing these regulations from the Obama era, that that they are just not important to us. You know, And that's, I think, at least in like the world I follow, it's gotten a little more attention, but it seems like a much broader thing than financial regulation. This seems like a more legit way to do it, to actually go through Congress and change the regulations. But it's like, shouldn't be super shocking what happens when you make those changes. Like, you will see the banks acting in different ways. In Idaho, we see pre-existing conditions coming back. One of the things I'm curious about, I don't know if Ezra, this came up in your reporting, is whether so you have Elizabeth Warren who you know is definitely able to drum up liberal activism and support you know coming out like you said pretty strong against this and i'm curious if there's going to be any you know movement or mobilization it almost reminds me of a possible net neutrality like a wonky issue that was kind of under the radar but then certain people started speaking up on it and all of a sudden it became this like huge internet backlash. I don't feel like that is happening around these banking regulations right now, but I'm curious if there's the space for that or if it is just like something too 
in the weeds to like mobile, like and people have been working on immigration, on healthcare. There's been like one wave after another. I don't know if this indivisible wave like gets riled up about banking regulations well, or not. Well, after people hear this episode of the weeds, <laughs> exactly. I, I don't know either. I mean, one thing I, I will say is that uh, one of the patterns so far in a lot of the democratic activism has been that it mo- it moves in early. This bill has been moving forward for a long time. And the activists, when they've been successful, have tended to stiffen the Democrat spine early and get leadership to treat it as a key vote and whip and, you know, make sure people hold the line and so on and so forth. That hasn't happened here. And so it's pretty clear. I don't believe uh, Schumer is for this bill, or at least he's not come out for it, but they are clearly not holding the Democrats back. They've been very capable of holding a party line vote when they want to, and they're not doing that. They're not holding a filibuster on this bill. I mean, the Democratic leadership is letting this bill go forward. Schumer obviously has tended to be close with the banking industry in New York. He's not the most aggressive financial regulator. And so there is a way in which the horse has sort of left the barn. I think the place where this is going to get interesting, though, is that, as I mentioned earlier, the House has passed very different versions of bills like this. And Jeb Henserling, who is the House Republican who chairs the Finance Committee down there, he wants to counter this bill with something that guts much more of Dodd-Frank. Now, the moderate Democrats on this bill have said, we are not going further than this. Um, if you if you do that, we're going to abandon it. Now, on the other hand, they're going to be under pressure if that happens from bank lobbyists, from community banks to not abandon it. So the, I think the the point where there's going to be the possibility of a lot of, of, of push and where you could see moderate Democrats flee this bill is if it changes after they've cut this deal, right? If they feel they cut the deal and the bill comes back with a deal they didn't cut because um, Crapo and Republicans cut a deal with the House, then I think all bets are off. But but in terms of the activism, I'm sure there's been some on it. Uh, I, certainly Warren and Brown and others have been trying to push this, but there is such a overwhelming um, zone right now of things people are upset about and outrage that I do think that it's just it's hard for everybody to like be all points at all times. I mean, it's it's flown under the rate. I mean, yeah. I didn't realize until this past weekend that this was that this was happening. And I'm I sure didn't realize, so as you said, do you want to do a segment sh- on the banking? Bill and, I mean, I do one. hear, you know, I mean, I, I just saw a report that, you know, Senator Bennett was telling people that who've been calling his office today that like, oh, we've been getting a lot of calls about this lately, which hadn't been the case previously. I think the point you were making, Sarah, about the regulators, though, is is critical because to me that's like the heart of the the rottenness here, right? Is that on so many fronts, Trump is doing things through the executive branch that Democrats in Congress don't like and that they object to, but they can't really do anything about. This is just a clear-cut case where they can do things, right? Like the, the American government is a complex system, not just of checks and balances, but of jointly shared powers and authority. Right. And if you believe in good faith, which is what what these Democrats claim to believe, which is that like Dodd-Frank was a good bill and we will refuse to gut Dodd-Frank. But we think that Dodd-Frank went too far in some respects and we are willing to accede to the demand that we roll it back in a few ways. That would be a golden opportunity to say. Donald Trump, like, we can do a deal with you on this, but some of the parameters of the deal have to include, like, that there will be real enforcement, right? Like, Democrats have leverage. He doesn't just need, like, one or two Democratic votes. He needs nine or ten Democratic votes to get this done between John McCain's health, uh, Thad Cochran's, uh, you know, in-and-out presence. And, like— you could really do something here. Like you could take a stand like 12 moderate Democrats could say like we are going to like make a real bipartisan deal, right, in which the deal is some regulatory favors for small and mid-sized banks in exchange for a real Consumer Financial Protection Bureau director, like a real SEC, like and they're not doing that, right? Like this is not a deal. It's just a sellout that they think they can get away with. Like there's no wins here on this deal for a progressive side, including on things that these Democratic members like claim to support. And it's just like it's inconceivable that Republicans would do this on this topic or on any other topic, that they would just accede to an ask from a Democratic majority in exchange for nothing at all, like under pressure from their base. Like it's it's crazy. And like people should be, I think, furious about it. Like, it's is incredibly irresponsible. There's nothing popular about this bill. I think 
And I think, frankly, that like that the substantive damage of the the will shall thing could prove to be enormous. I, I, I mean, think it, that too. It, it might be a small. De- it's hard to predict. Feels with, really hard to game with, out with things like this. What will happen? But you could imagine that becoming the basis for a series of court rulings that make yep. regulation basically impossible. The Federal Reserve, you know, like it only has so many people. Like these banks are really big. And if they have a lot of high-priced lawyers. They have a lot of lawyers. And if everything just becomes an endless argument about, well, has this been sufficiently tailored or not? Like, I mean, we'll have to see, right? It's going to depend to an extent on what judges think, on what lawyers do, blah, 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 blah. But it's it's very dangerous and there's no reason for it. Let's take a break and talk about some other stuff that is happening in the government that we don't like. We are sponsored this week by Squarespace. It's 2018. If you're doing something, if you have a business, if you're a creative professional of some kind, whatever it is you're doing, it should have a website. And your website should not look like garbage. But it might be hard to make a good website. I remember I used to make websites for myself. I was like hand coding HTML and living like a savage. And now, thanks to Squarespace, we can be incredibly civilized. You've got beautiful templates that are created by world-class designers. You can customize the look and feel. What you see is what you get. Easy to use type stuff. You can buy domains, choose from over 200 extensions. Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box. You design one site really easily without being like a super nerd or a computer programmer. And it's going to look good on people's computer screens, but also on their phones. They've got free secure hosting. Most amazingly, there's nothing to patch or upgrade ever, right? So you build a website, it works, it's going to keep working. There's 20 24-7 award-winning customer support. So what can you do with Squarespace? You can turn your cool idea into a new website, showcase your work, and can sell products or services of any kind. You can promote your physical or online business, announce an upcoming event or special project. Anything that you want to do on the web, it can be done with Squarespace. So make it stand out. Get started with Squarespace. Think it, dream it, make it with Squarespace. Here's what you need to know. If you go to squarespace.com, you get a free trial, right? So just go, type it in, squarespace.com, mess around. You're going to see how cool it looks. You're going to see how easy it is. So then if you're ready to launch, if you want a beautiful, amazing Squarespace site for yourself, use the offer code WEEDS to send 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Otherwise, just go to squarespace.com to check it out for free. So Sarah, is anything else happening that might raise Matt's blood pressure? There are so many things happening that can um, that can get a good Iglesias ranch going. So we spent a lot of the weeds yes last week, not yesterday. Feels like yesterday. Talking about the private market on the ACA, these marketplaces, what's going on in Idaho, this attempt to essentially bring back pre-existing conditions. But there is this other big thing happening in healthcare that our colleague Dylan Scott wrote a great piece about, called the Hidden War on Medicaid. And what we are seeing happen in real time over the past few months is the Trump administration really changed the face of a longstanding social safety net program. So Medicaid is one of the biggest providers of health insurance in the entire country. It covers tens of millions of low-income and disabled Americans. And the thing the Trump administration is is doing in cooperation with conservative states is changing some of the fundamental promises of the program. The way Medicaid has worked for decades is if you meet certain categories, if you you know are low income and pregnant, if you are low income and disabled, you qualify for health care. The Affordable Care Act changed that and said, you know, it's just if you're low income. Before, there was a lot of categorical pregnant, blind, disabled. In many states that participate in the Medicaid expansion, you just have to be low income to qualify. The thing the Trump administration would like to do now is add in a work requirement. So this idea that if you want to get Medicaid, that you are going to have to show that you are employed. You can see very actively Trump administration officials thinking about Medicaid as a program that is not just a healthcare program, but a transition back to work program, that the idea is not just to give people health care for some unlimited amount of time, but to get them into a situation where someone else is providing them with health care. So there are currently, as of just yesterday, Monday, there are three states that have been approved to create work requirements. Um, Indiana, Kentucky, and on Monday, Arkansas got its waiver. And Arkansas seems very dead set on being the first state to do this. So it looks like by this summer, 
We will have states that have work requirements in Medicaid. The Medicare administrator, Seema Verma, she told reporters yesterday that eight states have submitted applications for work requirements. Nine more have expressed interest to the federal government. So it is a plausible world we could live in a year or two from now where half of the states require one to work to be part of the Medicaid program. And that would be a huge, huge change. It would be a huge experiment with the Medicaid program. It near certainly, you know, even states that are implementing these work requirements will admit it will lead to fewer people being on Medicaid. Most of the estimates are enrollment would go down 8 to 15 percent. So it's a it's a huge change that's happening, but it's one that doesn't often make as many headlines, much like banking regulations. But for a lot of vulnerable, low-income Americans, this could be a really big change that they're facing in the next few months. Okay, for the purposes of this segment, I'm going to take the Republican side of the argument. We've expanded Medicaid massively in the past five years, in fact, in the past 20, 30 years. It used to be a very targeted program for mother, for poor mothers with small children. Now it goes to sort of anybody in a state that is expanded who makes us 133 percent of the poverty line. If the American taxpayer is going to pick up the bill for all these people that have Medicaid, why shouldn't we demand that they're working or out there looking for work? I mean, what's wrong with that? We did it with welfare reform. It worked great. Um, <laughs> or so goes the conventional wisdom. Like Work requirements, it should be said, are popular, right? Mm-hmm. They, they make intuitive sense to people. If taxpayers are going to be paying for all these childless young men to be on Medicaid. Why shouldn't we demand that they're working? Yes. And actually, to your point, I saw some really interesting research um, that's still in the you know working phase presented at a conference I was at a few weeks ago that found that Democrat voters actually really like the idea of work requirements. So it is not, you know, this I think it is very unpopular among a lot of the Medicaid wonks I talk to. More generally, it's actually a popular idea. I think it gets at this question we've talked about a lot on the weeds about whether, you know, vulnerable Americans have a right to health care or whether it is a privilege that one works for. And I think that's a really deep philosophical divide that really will, you know, determine where you fall on this particular issue. You know, one thing I will say is that Medicaid certainly costs have been growing, but the people who are coming on now really aren't the reason why. So the people who come on through Obamacare are generally, um, you know, single men who, you know, could not find a way onto Medicaid before. If you weren't a parent, if you weren't pregnant, if you weren't disabled, if you were an able-bodied man, it was really, really tough to qualify for for Medicaid before Obamacare. But those people aren't actually that expensive. You know, they tend to have relatively few health care needs. The things where Medicaid becomes expensive, we're talking about nursing services, about people who need home aids, who need, uh, you know, long-term care. Those are the things that really drive up Medicaid costs. So I think it's a bit of a fallacy to say that this Obamacare expansion is, you know, blowing a hole in state budgets. I think it's certainly true. Medicaid costs have become hard for states, but it is not this recent Obamacare expansion that is the thing that is driving that. If I could just ask one more, let me ask you one other technical question on this before Mm -hmm. before we get deeper into it. Let's say you're in a state um, that's doing this and you can't find work. Right. The, the employment market is not good or your skills do not match it or whatever. When these regulations go into effect, what happens? Do you just have to certify with someone that you're looking by sending them copies of resumes you're sending out? Is it just about whether or not you find work within a, a certain period of time? What is what is it a requirement to be working or a requirement to certify that you are interested in working? So that is an excellent question that I think we will see hashed out in Kentucky and Arkansas state level regulations. Their work requirements generally include, you know, you have to be either working, searching for work, volunteering or going to school or some are like the suite of activities that fulfill a work requirement. We don't know at this point, you know, what Kentucky will count as looking for work. Like, do you have to show up to a job center five hours a day and like that could be you're looking for work requirement. I think some of these and I will say caring, they do have some exemptions for people who are caring for dependents. But again, like we haven't actually seen the regulation of like how you prove you're caring for a dependent. You know, I've interviewed some people in Kentucky who live in more rural areas and the way, you know, one of them who um, is on Medicaid because she has extreme vertigo and was was unable to work because she can't drive is in this tough situation where because of a medical condition, her doctors say she shouldn't drive because she could have a vertigo episode while driving and that could be deadly. 
So she lives in an area without much public transport, unable to drive, but she has not been able to get disability. She has not been able to get certified as disabled by the federal government. We don't know. Is she going to be counted as able-bodied under this Kentucky regulation? It seems really hard for a person like that to make good on um, on this work requirement. And she's someone who would like to be working, who liked working before you know she got started having these health care issues. And those are all outstanding questions. But I, I will say I think it's notable that Kentucky itself expects Medicaid enrollment to drop, that some people are not going to comply with this. We don't know if that's people who um, who have decided not to work, who want to work but can't, but it seems like there will near certainly be fewer people on Medicaid in Kentucky after this goes into effect. I think, you know, the projected enrollment drop, I think, is telling, though, because if you see the sort of rhetoric that I've seen about this from conservatives, they are postulating a surge in employment, right? Like what Seema Verma is talking about is the idea that these changes to the Medicaid program are going to give people the kind of swift, something along the lines of like you get a swift kick in the butt and then you go get a job and you keep your Medicaid, but you also have a job and now you have more money and you're like on the, the ladder to prosperity, you know, things like that, right? And that I think makes a certain amount of sense, right? If if you believe it, right, that it would be better for people to be employed and have health insurance than to be unemployed but having health insurance and that work requirements will somehow make that happen. And that was part of the the legend of welfare reform, right, was that the idea wasn't just that we're going to like cut some people off the program, but that by threatening to cut people off the program, we're going to get people into employment, break a culture of poverty, blah, 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 blah. These budget projections, it's like it's important. It's it's telling that like what Kentucky actually thinks Kentucky's work requirement is going to do is let them not cover as many people on on Medicaid. You know, there's a case for that. And I think I think, you know, Sarah, you, you referred to a sort of deep philosophical divide. But I almost think there's like a shallow philosophical divide here, which is just that out of a kind of uh, well, we talk about it all the time, but like institutional laziness and and whatever, like America continues to provide health insurance to most people through heavy but very hidden public subsidies that are passed through employers and blah, 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 blah. So I think there's a very common sense. It's like I get my health insurance because I work. So like, so should you. Whereas if it was like there should be a work requirement for going to the playground, you'd be like, that's dumb. You know, if, if I want to go go to the playground, like I, I work and I also go to the playground, but I don't get to go to the playground specifically because I work. Just love swings. So the idea, well, <laughs> I, I have a child. Um, sure so, the, so the idea that non-working people could also avail themselves of the playground doesn't like have that dissonance. And then, of course, you think like, well, lots of people don't work, but like maybe they don't work because they're retired. Well, they should be allowed to go to the playground. But if you're a full time student, you should be allowed to go. Well, what if you're just right? The problem with the work requirement is that like the, the simple logic of like I work for my health insurance and so should you. I just think uh, fundamentally there's like an inherent instability of this. And like if the progressive view is that everybody should have health insurance, which I think it is, that this effort to like stitch this monster together out of 12 pieces is more difficult than I think a couple of earlier generations of Democrats have thought it was going to be because the the logic of the of the quilt keeps kind of tearing apart. Whereas if you provide a public service to everyone, that's challenging and it's expensive and there is some public pressure to cut back spending on public services. But I think generally not this impulse to attach work requirements to things that are provided on a universal basis. But when for most people the service is connected to work, then I sort of see it, right? It's like if, if I have to work for my health insurance, like, why shouldn't Joe the unemployed guy? Whereas, like, we all just go on the sidewalk, we drive on the road, we go to the park, and, like, it's fine. It would be costly to provide health care at public expense to everybody. But if you had it, I don't think there would be this impulse to start throwing people off of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think another place you see this kind of split show up is something some states have asked for but hasn't been approved yet but is in the mix is um, having some kind of time limit of how long you can be on Medicaid. I'm curious, I haven't seen much polling on it, where Democrats, where liberals 
land on this if people would be okay looking at Medicaid as a transitional program. You know, we're talking about, you know, you can be on Medicaid for four years, five years as the ones I've seen proposed so far. And again, I think it like gets to Matt's point of how we think about health insurance as this thing that, you know, gets you through that might, you know, you're unemployed, you get it, but, you know, really what you should be doing is working and, and getting your health insurance through work. And most of these time limits, I would say, they do have exemptions for people who are disabled, for people who, you know, have some clear health care need. I think it's an interesting question whether Americans, you know, you know, thinking of a single able-bodied man or woman, if we're okay okay with this idea that the government will provide them with health insurance forever. And I I don't think that we're there. Like right now, Medicaid will do that in the expansion states if you are someone who is low income. And I think that is something that is certainly supported by, you know, Democrats. But I don't know how long how long that support runs. I think it's an interesting debate you see in the United States that you don't see in many other developed countries about whether people should be able to stay on public insurance as long as they would like to. One of the things that I I do think is true in this space is that the public holds many policy opinions that are plausibly contradictory simultaneously and is okay with a number of different outcomes. So on the one hand, I think the public would be broadly okay with attaching work requirements to Medicaid. I think polling shows that pretty clearly. On the other hand, I think the public would be completely okay with leaving Medicaid exactly as it is. I think the polling shows that pretty clearly. And so there's a way in which this comes down to the exercise of raw political power over time. I think that if I do not think Republicans are going to run and win a lot of power based on time limits on Medicaid or even for that matter, work requirements on Medicaid, I'm not saying it can't be a useful issue in some states, but I don't think overall it's going to be a a primary uh, issue for them. But if they do run and win a lot of power for whatever reason, I think that is an equilibrium they're going to be able to, to push into law, particularly in states they control. I mean, it's again, we're saying that what's happening here is not that at least at this juncture, national, like nationally, you only get your Medicaid money if you had work requirements. They're just allowing states the option of putting work requirements on Medicaid. But I, I think this is a place where what really ends up mattering is who holds the levers of power. If Hillary Clinton had won and Arkansas had come to her and said, we want to add work requirements to Medicaid, her HHS director would have said, no, you're just well, not. Well, this happened during the Obama yeah, exactly. administration. It happened a number of times. And, you know, similarly, if... um Whoever, Cory Booker or Elizabeth Warren or, or whoever it might be, wins in 2020, I think some of these states might find their waivers expiring um, and, and not getting renewed. And so, so I do think this is something where public opinion matters here and what could be tolerated, but a lot of different things would be tolerated. And so political power matters most of all, which Speaking is of maybe <laughs> a useful segue into our constitutional like, hardball. So our paper this week is excitingly not an NBER paper. It's a Columbia Law Review paper forthcoming, uh, which I I really have some issues with how law reviews structure footnotes. These papers, it's like you'll have these pages that are just all footnotes and like poor sentences of text. So broad point, law reviews, please think about putting footnotes just at the end. Anyway, the paper is called Asymmetric Constitutional Hardball. It's by Joseph Fishkin and David Posen. And and what they're doing here is they're building on an idea uh, that Matt has actually written a lot about called constitutional hardball, which is a concept about political majorities doing things that are clearly within the rules, but are, are norm-breaking, are deleterious to the system, are in some way or another bending or pushing power in ways that it was not traditionally used or traditionally intended to accomplish their goals. It's basically majorities using their power more aggressively. Um, and one of the things that that Fishkin and Posner are trying to argue here is that for structural reasons within the Democratic and Republican coalitions, both sides are doing more constitutional hardball. Uh, Republicans, for instance, do not allow a vote on Merrick Garland. Democrats, for instance, weaken the filibuster in 2013. But 
On the other hand, they're saying that much as there's been asymmetric polarization where both parties have moved further towards their polls, Republicans have just in the numbers moved quite a bit further right than Democrats have left, there's asymmetric usage of this kind of constitutional hardball concept. Um, And they write, while Democrats may well become more aggressive practitioners of constitutional hardball, they will not keep pace with Republicans. And this partisan difference will will continue to be a pivotal feature of American constitutional government. Uh, and I think you see a bit of this in the past couple of years. I mean, Republicans use the debt ceiling uh, as a leverage point, which Democrats have not. Their shutdowns were both more numerous and lasted quite a bit longer than the three-day uh, quick, quickly abandoned Democratic shutdown over DACA. On the other hand, I think reading this paper, one thing you see is that, first, it's very hard to quantify who is using how much hardball, what even uh <laughs> figures as hardball. Different people will will count different things as hardball versus just normal ball. And then the other thing, one of the dynamics I think you really see here, particularly given that both coalitions look at what the other is doing and see a lot of unfairness and ruthlessness uh, on the other side. It's just always amazing. You talk to Democrats and they see the Republican Party as just this completely ruthless machine. You talk to Republicans and they always think the Democratic Party is organized and aggressive and Republicans can never manage to be. Once the hardball dynamic going both ways begins, everyone does enough hardball to keep it going on the other side. And so you just end up in this endless escalation process by which there's just no – there's no – level at which the logic of norm violation stops making sense, which I think is sort of where Congress is now and and accounts for some of the problems we see in it. Yeah, this is one of my struggles with the paper was this a lot of it was very definitional. And I think I mean, my biggest critique would be it felt more qualitative, like what gets counted as hardball. Like, I'm curious, can you you're a little more familiar with the paper than I am. Like, what are some of you do you think like their best examples of like what actually, or Matt, you've been like, Matt, you look at this, like yeah. what, what is hardball? Cause I found that like a hard thing that felt very, at least to me reading this paper, very sub- subjective to say, well, this counts as hardball and this is, you know, normal sport. Well, so my, my personal introduction to constitutional hardball came a, a little bit before Chester's paper came out. But one, one of the first things I covered when I came to Washington was the 2003 Medicare reform bill that the Bush administration put through. And Democrats didn't like the bill. And, you know, I asked people and, and Republicans did not have 60 votes for it. And I was like, why are you guys letting this go through? And like Democrats, just, just they just said, like, well, you can't filibuster a conference report. And that wasn't like you couldn't filibuster a conference report, right? There was no rule about that. It was just you you can't, right? It it isn't done. It would be like, I don't know, just like come into the office with no clothes on or, or something, you know? And so the bill went through. And in later years, of course, you filibuster everything, right? And that's... That's the hardball, right? That's moving away. And Democrats made some hardball moves during that era. They started filibustering George W. Bush's nominees to lower courts, some of them, not all of them, but but some of them. And at the time Democrats did that, Republicans pointed out that there had never been filibusters of lower court judicial nominees. And Democrats came back and they said, well, you know, there was this filibuster of Abe Fortas. And Republicans would say, well, you know, that was for the Supreme Court. Also, that wasn't an opposition to his ideology or his jurisprudence. It was a corruption question, blah, 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 blah. And that murky dynamic is like the essence of constitutional hardball, if you ask me, is that it swiftly devolves into a conversation about who started it. And about whether Democrats blocking Robert Bork simply for thinking he would be a really bad Supreme Court justice is what started everything. Or was it Republicans blocking Fortas? Um, Was it different that Democrats filibustered some of Bush's lower court nominees, whereas Republicans later filibustered all of Obama's? But it shows that you're you're in a tit for tat dynamic And that's why I actually have trouble with the concept of asymmetrical hardball. Um, I agree that the Republican and Democratic parties are not mirror images of each other. So they do hardball differently for different reasons, in different circumstances, for different subjects. But the tit-for-tat reciprocal nature of it seems to me to be actually like integral to the concept. That it's like how you know you're in hardball 
in part is that both sides are claiming previous instances of the other team doing hardball is what makes it justified. Um, Where sometimes, right, it's like Donald Trump gives a State of the Union speech and he doesn't offer any reasons why it's okay for him to give a State of the Union speech, right? Like that's how we know it's not hardball. Like everybody agrees that it's fine. Uh, Other times it's like he, one thing he's doing, a hardball-y thing he is doing is he is appointing acting directors even though he hasn't nominated anyone to run the agency. So it's not like Congress is creating a vacancy and so Trump needs to do something about it. It's just like he doesn't want to bother with and appointing someone and holding tax returns are hardball. Right. That's a norm that you've otherwise would have, but it's doesn't have to release them. Right. But you can do it. Exactly. So 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 he's decided not to do it. I think it's easy for liberals to downplay how much hardball, A, that there was from congressional Democrats in the Bush years, a fair amount of hardball. It's true that what Democrats did in the Bush years looks soft compared to what congressional Republicans did when Obama was president. But that's like the essence of hardball is that it escalates. Secondarily, that Obama did a lot of hardball, right? That in particular, uh, DAPA, Obama's immigration moves uh, in, in late 2014, he had specifically said earlier in his administration that he couldn't do that, right? He said, I can't do that. I'm not a king. Now, I know a lot of immigration uh, advocates will say to me that, like, they are annoyed by the citations of that statement by Obama, that what Obama did was he just gave an offhand remark without really consulting lawyers and lawyers validate that he could, in fact, do what he did. That's true. But I think, again, and then he did what he did, which also right. showed. <laughs> but I mean, to me, that's the essence of hardball, right? Like Barack Obama, as a veteran politician's instinct was you can't do that. And then later, like he and his team and a bunch of lawyers poured over it and they were like, oh, ha ha ha. Actually, we can do that. But like that's what the hardball is, right? You're moving from a shared understanding of what can be done in politics to a very legalistic understanding of what can be done in politics. And Obama definitely did that. He did that with the clean power plan where he he did a kind of regulation of existing sources that. When people were earlier talking about that, they were like, you can't do it. But some smart lawyers came up with a way to do it. He did it on DAPA where like Obama himself had said, like, I can't do that. And then some smart lawyers were like, well, maybe you can do it. And it's not symmetrical in part because like Republicans wouldn't do hardball on exactly those kinds of subjects or in that kind of way. Like the the parties really are different. But I think in another way, like they're the same. One thing that uh, I want to add to all this is I think the paper misses a dynamic that I see all the time in Congress and actually seems to me to be the key to the logic of hardball escalation, which is what I would call preemptive hardball. I cannot tell you how many rule violations or norm violations I hear justified based on a view of what one side thinks the other side will do in the future. It was an article of faith among Democrats in 2013 that when Republicans took power, they would end the filibuster. And so Democrats may as well at least weaken the filibuster so Obama could get some judges and some um, cabinet appointees through. Uh, It has been an article of faith among Republicans that Given what Democrats already did, when they regain power, they will end the filibuster. So that has been part of the justification for putting all of tax reform and all of health care through reconciliation and also ending the filibuster on Supreme Court nominees because they don't even believe that the norm is that there's a filibuster anymore. They believe that there is a – which I think is actually a reasonable belief – a filibuster, a weakened filibuster that Democrats may uh, just choose to to end, much as they did, again, on cabinet and and lower-level judicial nominees in, in 2013. One of the dimensions of hardball is that it creates a view of the other side as willing to do anything to win. And when the other side is willing to do anything to win, and that's your view of them, because, of course, you have a a dimmer view of their motivations than they have of their motivations, right? You see them as the aggressor. Then it becomes very hard to resist claims on your own side to play hardball because, what, you're going to come to a gunfight with a knife? 
right? That That's always the, the analogy used. And so you get into these things. I mean, when Democrats did the brief shutdown over DACA, one of the things happening was there was a lot of, of claims from activists saying, how can you say you support Dreamers, how can you say that you really care about this if you won't do what Republicans do every single time to gain leverage? And and Democrats actually found that pretty persuasive. They didn't end up holding to it, I think, because they they didn't see an end game there. But but they did find that persuasive. So one of the things that is a, a really profound uh, kind of parody is that both sides look at the other and they see in the other and in their view of the other not just the potential but the inevitability of future rule changing and norm breaking. And if that's going to be true, then they may as well push harder to use what power they have now, because when they're out of power in the future, they're really going to look like suckers if they didn't get anything done. And then the other side just changed the rules to get a ton done. And that dynamic, it's really, really difficult to put back in the box, in part because it isn't obviously untrue. It's actually a reasonable prediction of how hardball escalation works. I mean, one of the problems with Congress as a whole is that if you believe that nobody likes the way it works, which I think is more or less true, although obviously a lot of people benefit from the way it works, stopping it is a collective action problem. I mean, it's it's rational for the individual players and even the individual parties to do what they're doing, and they don't really have a good way or they don't seem to be able to come up with a good way of like coming together and and stopping any of this in a sustained fashion. Or another version is maybe they just don't want to do that. In fact, they just like complaining about everything. But but this this dimension of preemptive hardball, I think is actually the key to the whole thing. It's the way that everybody rationalizes their latest norm violation to themselves. And I think it I think that is a way in which it is pretty symmetric. So one of the theories this paper puts forward is not just that it's asymmetric, but that there are reasons this is happening on the Republican side more than the Democrat. And, you know, one of the things they get into a lot is that you've seen more of an extremist Tea Party side of the Republican Party than you have of Democrats, that Republicans have to worry a lot more about getting primaried from the right than Democrats have in recent years about getting primaried from the left. And the they kind of lay out a structural explanation for why this is more likely to happen in the right, the way that their elections are funded, the way that you have more of a mega donor culture there than you have on the left. I think one really interesting test of like whether this theory is true is what happens the next time Democrats are. Well, I guess two tests is one. Do you see any version of that happen as we get into the 2018 midterms? And two, do you see that explanation hold when Democrats are in power? Because I don't know, I, I agree with you guys that I feel like once Democrats get power after, you know, whenever they do after going through the Trump administration, like they're going to do whatever the fuck they want to like get to single payer, like do like whatever big thing and point back and say, like, look at all these things that you guys did that it I don't know that it, that explanation holds. I, I found it hard to buy that the reason the asymmetric hardball is happening is because of the funding structure and the ideology of Republicans. I think something different happening on the liberal side is that there's a liberal bias to lawmaking, that there's more of a desire to pass things, to expand the role of government on the Democrat side. And I will be curious to see, you know, in the next decade or so, whether that is like the same push. You have one push on the right from more extremists who are more willing to break norms. Um, but I think Democrats want to pass laws and they're, I don't know if there's as much respect for for norms that are going to stop them from being able to do that. Yeah, I think, you know, I've been reading about um, 19th century politics lately because uh, I, I read the Ulysses Grant biography and it, it's interesting how much more hardball. I just started that, but that book biography is really good. It's it's quite long though. Um, well, I'm it, not that far into it. It's fascinating <laughs> how much hardball there was in what we now in retrospect call the Gilded Age. Like if you've ever wondered why there's two Dakotas, it's like Republicans were trying to gerrymander the Senate. It's not that there was some pastime when these like empty states that nobody lived in, it seemed so crowded that there had to be two of them. It was just like they wanted more senators. So they created these two states. Um, there was a, a tremendous amount of disputed elections back then. Like one of the really big things that Congress would do is refuse to seat 
people who won House elections from the minority party and say like, oh, no, there was fraud and like give it to the guy who lost and make their majority bigger. Um, At the time, I think the hardball felt not quite as hard as it does to us because the immediate backdrop of the Gilded Age was a war in which hundreds of thousands of people died over what we would nowadays call like a partisan political disagreement about an important public policy question. Whatever you think of symmetry, it's good, it's bad. Like we will most likely go like a long way further down this road. Like we are really, really far from the like past theoretical limits of how much hardballing happens in Congress. We still have most people who are in the most senior positions in politics and media today uh, have like living personal experience of the low ebb of political polarization in the United States. So everything feels very shocking to them. Uh, When people like the age of these podcasters are like the old guys, like things are going to be crazy out there. Like, well, And I do want to know, and I think you can see the beginnings of that now. I, I think if you want to see a version of hardball happening in the U.S. as we speak that is really dangerous, go look at North Carolina. Yeah. So North Carolina, not only was that place gerrymandered within an inch of its political life, but the governor lost, the Republican governor lost in the 2016 election. And then on the way out, worked with the Republican legislature to change all the rules, to make the Republican legislature more powerful, to make the Democratic, the incoming Democratic governor less powerful, to in all kinds of ways perpetuate their own power. And I mean, that's a modern thing happening right now. And people were outraged, but a lot of it just happened. Right. Um, and, and you can do a lot uh, around this stuff. Voting rights, things we've seen, I think that should probably be understood as at very least a form of political hardball. Um, as you say, this can get a lot worse than like tailoring the filibuster process. And it probably will. But what won't get worse is listening to podcasts. It only gets better when you listen to uh, Fox Media Podcast Network podcasts. You should definitely check out Today Explained. The Ezra Klein Show. Ezra Klein Show. Podcast. It's okay. It's all right. If you, if you have, have the jo- Actually, you guys might be interested. I have Joe Kennedy on this week. Uh, so we talk a lot about, uh, we sort of talk about what policy lies behind his speech and his vision for the Democratic Party. Uh, he's also an interesting way, a hardliner, at least for modern particularly young modern Democrats, on drugs. So we have a long conversation about that, about healthcare. I think Weeds listeners will enjoy it. Um, also, Weeds listeners should join our Weeds listener Facebook group where all kinds of fun policy discussion happens. You go to Facebook and you search The Weeds and you will probably find it. Fantastic group. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks to our engineer, Griffin Tanner, our producer, Bridget Armstrong. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to all of you. The Weeds will be back on Friday. 